Revelation chapter 20. We're coming down to those last few chapters in this blessed book. By the way, this is the only book in the Bible uh, where we have a beatitude in the beginning. Where it's uh, chapter 1 verse 3, we're told, Blessed is he who reads the words of this prophecy. And I pray that you have been blessed as we've studied this. I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, going back and revisiting these passages. And uh, the best is yet to come, as I said earlier, uh, because from uh, chapter 20 on, uh, it talks about the new heavens, the new earth, new Jerusalem, and heaven to come. But today, we are going to be talking about the millennium. Now, if you look up the word utopia in the dictionary, you're going to find the following definition. An imaginary place in which the government, laws, and social conditions are perfect. Now, notice the key word there in that definition, imaginary. Even the dictionary understands that such a place is really a pipe dream. Now, that word utopia... It's a curious one. It's actually the combination of two Greek words, which literally means no place. The phrase was coined by the philosopher Sir Thomas More in the year 1516 when he wrote a fanciful tale about an island society in the Atlantic where people lived in peace. And man has searched for utopia through the centuries, whether it's been a monarchy or a democracy, a republic, or a totalitarian regime, or uh, communism, different forms of government man has tried to implement to create a utopian state. And man has not been able to do it yet. Maybe the most recent incarnation of this dream is Disneyland. No joke. Now years ago, I came across an interesting thought that was penned by a man named Pat Williams. He was a biographer of Walt Disney. And he said in his book about Disney that what motivated Walt Disney to build a theme park was his innate desire to create a little slice of heaven on earth. Here's what his biographer said. He said, quote, I know that Walt felt that longing for heaven. He had that longing when he was a boy in Kansas peering through the fence at Electric Park wanting what he couldn't have because he didn't have a dime in his pocket. I believe it was that same longing for heaven that drove Walt to build a perfect place where children could ride the merry-go-rounds and always catch a brass ring. A place where yesterday and tomorrow were always within walking distance. A place where anyone can be perfectly happy, if only for one day. So how did Walt Disney do in achieving his utopia? His happiest place on earth? Well... We have to go back to 1955, the day that Disneyland opened in California. They were going to do a soft opening. They sent out a select few invitations to 2,000 guests. But unfortunately, those were counterfeited. And something like 28,000 people showed up to be the first through the turnstiles at Disneyland. To compound the problems further that opening day of Disneyland, it was unseasonably warm. The temperature was 101 degrees. There was a plumber's strike during the construction of the park and Disney had to choose for the opening day whether he would have working water fountains or working bathrooms. Which one do you think he picked? (laughs) He picked bathrooms. Now obviously the park was not ready for the public. 
The food and drink ran out before the day's end. A woman's high heel shoe got stuck in the wet asphalt at Main Street, USA. The Mark Twain steamboat nearly capsized from too many passengers and people looted merchandise from Sleeping Beauty's castle. So opening day for Walt Disney wasn't very happy. I could tell a story about my family. Uh, We went when I was about 19, 18 years old to uh, Disney World down in Florida. And my dad made the mistake of going into the park that day wearing flip-flops. Now, uh, he got his tops of his feet baked that day. And we ended up in the infirmary (laughs) for second-degree burns on the tops of his feet. And uh, it was not a happy day in Disney World. Now, mankind will never be able to create that idyllic civilization on earth. But I've got news for you, friend. Jesus will. In fact, in Revelation 20, the Bible describes for us a thousand-year period in which Jesus will rule the earth with perfect peace, prosperity, and justice. And I like what prophecy scholar Mark Hitchcock said about the millennium. He said, quote, it's the last phase of history in which the world is finally turned right side up by King Jesus. How many of you are looking forward to that era? It's coming. And as we look at our world that's so marred by sin, so evil, and uh, so consumed with death, the thought of Christ ruling and reigning our planet fills me with an everlasting hope today. Because Jesus is coming to set up His kingdom. In this message, I want to lift your heart toward heaven. I want to fill you with hope today. I want to encourage you with this news that it's going to be a blessed time of Christ's rule. So let's talk about the millennium today. Number one, I want you to see with me the period of the millennium. Number one, the period of the millennium. Let's just uh, peek into verse 1, chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him, here it is, for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended and that he must be released for a little while. Now, in your English Bibles, as you read that passage, you do not see the word millennium. It's not there. You will find a reference to it, though, to a literal thousand-year period six times in this chapter. In fact, it's in verse 2, it's in verse 3, it's in verse 4, 5, 6, and 7. Now, theologians have borrowed a Latin phrase to describe this era, the epoch of the millennium, it's made up of two Latin words, mille, which means thousand, and annum, which means year. So it's literally translated in your Bible, a thousand years. Now, some who read this passage might want to allegorize this or spiritualize that number and say, oh, that's not a real period of a thousand years. But friend, I take God at His Word. I believe when God says it, He means what He says, and He says what He means. And if He says a thousand years for six times in this passage, He probably means it for us to take it literally. I'm just that gullible. I read the Bible and I believe it. What about you? Well, admittedly, there's not a whole lot of preaching today about 
this interesting period called the millennium. And it's odd, considering the fact that the Bible has so much to say about this era, specifically the Old Testament. In fact, the late J. Dwight Pentecost, a prophecy scholar, he devoted his entire life to the study of prophecy. Here's what he wrote in one of his books. He said, quote, A larger body of prophetic scripture is devoted to the subject of the millennium, developing its character and conditions than any other subject. Therefore, the millennial age demands considerable attention. Now, the great debate that has raged between Bible students is, when is this thousand-year period going to be? Well, if we interpret the Bible literally, then it's clear that there's a discernible timeline that emerges. And this is the way that I've preached through the whole book of Revelation. First, uh, there's the church age. That's the time period in which we are in currently. It's an undetermined, undisclosed period of time. Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour that He will return. We're in the church age right now. But then one day, uh, Jesus is going to step out on a cloud. The trumpet is going to be blown. The church is going to go up, up, and away and join Him in the air. We'll be transformed in the blink of an eye. We'll get a resurrection body and we will forever be with the Lord. That's the rapture. That's the next prophetic event on God's calendar. Then after that, we've read in the book of Revelation about seven years of tribulation. And praise God, the church will not be here to suffer through that. If you can't say amen for anything today, you can say amen, I won't be going through the tribulation. Then we see that after that, the return of the king, we studied that last week in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes robed in those regal robes, riding that white horse, a name called King of Kings and Lord of Lords tattooed across His body. He uh, judges His enemies with the word that proceeds from His mouth. He's going to return to this earth. And then after He defeats the Antichrist, the false prophet, He casts them into the lake of fire. He's going to deal with the devil. He'll bind him up for a thousand years. And then Jesus is going to set up a perfect kingdom here on this earth for how many years, church? A thousand years. Now, the period of the millennium. I want to talk to you secondly about the purposes of the millennium. There's at least three important goals that God is going to accomplish during this thousand year reign. The first one we already read about in verses 1 through 3. Notice this. The millennium will relinquish Satan's control of the earth to Christ. Notice what happens here. Verse 2, He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. How many of you are looking that forward to that day when the devil gets a black eye and he gets chained up and thrown into the pit? Well, that's the first purpose. Martin Luther had a great saying, very comforting, and it's true. He said, the devil is God's devil. And what he meant by that is Satan is not God's equal. Satan is created. God is creator. Satan is finite. God is infinite. Satan is mighty, but God is almighty. Even Satan serves God's purposes and does nothing without God's prior knowledge and approval. Right now, Satan has been given a leash. He's been allowed to reign freely over this earth. 1 Peter 5.8 says, The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
Paul refers to Satan in Ephesians 2.2 as the prince of the power of the air. And since the first chapters in Genesis, we have seen how the serpent in the garden has been allowed to run across the earth and tempt the hearts of men and oppose God's work. But you know what? Satan is living on borrowed time. And friend, he knows it. And that's why he doesn't want you to read this book because he doesn't want you to read of his final defeat and doom. Now, there are some people that call themselves amillennialists. They wrongly interpret this passage. And they say, oh, we're in the thousand year reign right now. They say, Satan was bound at the cross. You know what I say? Well, if that's so, he must be on a really long leash. Friend, that's not the case. Satan hasn't been bound yet, but his day's coming. Now, the millennial reign of Christ is going to take away the enemy's freedom. And John tells us that Satan is going to be incarcerated in a place called the bottomless pit. And once again, God proves in this passage that He is sovereign over the universe, that He really is calling the shots. The authority of Jesus during this period will be unquestioned. There will be no rivals vying for power. Kings will surrender their crowns when Jesus takes the throne. Presidents and potentates will give up their office to King Jesus. They will roll out the red carpet for His arrival. And friend, I'm telling you, the politicians will be out of work when King Jesus steps in. There'll be no Congress, there'll be no Supreme Court, there'll be no NATO, no UN, only a monarchy, and only Jesus Christ will be worthy enough to wear the crown, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I heard about a guy who learned of an operation that would enable him to get a better brain. So he went to the doctor where the surgery was performed. And he asked the doctor, he said, Okay, doc, I've heard about this surgery that you do. I'd like a better brain. What kind of brains do you have in stock? The doctor took him through the inventory room. He said, Well, here's an excellent engineer's brain. He said, It's a finely honed piece of gray matter, but it's a little expensive. It'll cost you $500 an ounce. The man thought about it. He said, Well, what else do you got, doc? He wanted to know more, so the doctor took him down to the next one. He said, look here, here's a brain that came from a doctor. This is a doctor's brain. It's probably one of the best ones I've got. $2,000 an ounce, though. The man shook his head. He said, well, doc, he said, you know, I, I just don't know. Show me what else you've got. The doctor took him over to one section of his room, and he said, all right, look at this over here. He uncovered a vat. He said, this is a politician's brain. He said, a politician's brain? What does that cost? He said, $250,000 an ounce. The fellow said, wow. He said, why in the world is a politician's brain so expensive? And the doctor said, well, for two reasons. Number one, it's hardly used. And number two, do you know how many politicians it takes to get one ounce of brain? <laughs> Friend, I am happy to tell you today that in the millennium, there'll be no politicians, there'll only be one, and it's King Jesus. Some people wonder, they say, well, why is it important for Jesus to rule for a thousand years here on the earth? Well, here's why. I'm about to tell you. Charles Ryrie gave a great answer for this. He said, 
quote, because Christ must triumph in the same arena in which He was seemingly defeated. His rejection by the rulers of this world was on the earth, and His exaltation must be on the earth. And so it shall be when He comes to rule the world in righteousness, He has waited long, and He soon shall receive it. So we see the first purpose is the millennium will relinquish control from Satan. Then secondly, the millennium is going to reward the people of God. Look at what it says in verse 6 as we move through this. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom had the authority to judge. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, watch this, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. Watch this. They will reign with Him for a thousand years. That passage right there is talking about the church. is talking about you and I ruling and reigning with Christ during this time period. Faithful stewards will receive an amazing promotion to serve God with greater capacity. And the reward of faithfulness during this life will determine the role that we will be assigned during Christ's kingdom. Imagine this. Think about being given a dream job by the Lord Jesus. Maybe you'll be on the planning committee for mapping out a new city that's going to be built to the glory of God. Maybe you're going to be given the job of planting and harvesting crops on a huge farm. Maybe you have been commissioned to learn how to play an instrument and put together a symphony that will be dedicated to the praise of King Jesus. The possibilities are endless, and God has a job for you. Listen to what Randy Alcorn said about this. I love this passage. He said, The idea of service as a reward is foreign to a lot of people who don't like their work who only put up with their work until it's time to retire. We think that faithful service should be rewarded with a long vacation, but God offers us an opportunity very different from work. More responsibilities, a larger scale to work on, perfected abilities, plentiful resources, unparalleled wisdom, and supernatural empowerment are His rewards. We will have sharper minds, stronger bodies, clear purpose, and unabated joy. In the millennium, He says, you will whistle while you work. Friend, I'd be happy to be a street sweeper in Jesus' kingdom. David said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Friend, listen to me. A day is coming. We'll have clearer eyes to see Him. We'll have stronger hands to serve Him. We'll have a sweeter voice to sing about Him. I'm looking forward to spending eternity with you and serving King Jesus. It's going to reward the people of God. It's going to relinquish control from Satan. Then the millennium number three is going to reveal the sinful heart of man. It's going to reveal the sinful heart of man. Now we know that Satan is going to be bound. But there's a time period, a brief season there at the end of the millennium, where Satan will be let loose. Look at what verse 7 says. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. 
Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in that beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Now John tells us that when Jesus Christ comes to the earth, not only is He going to bind up Satan, and there's going to be a thousand years of peace, but at the end of that time period, Satan is going to be released. You see, one thing you need to understand is that the millennial age, when it begins, there will be a, a nucleus of Gentiles and Jews who live through the tribulation. And they're going to come through, and they're going to live in that thousand-year period. But those folks will not have sinless resurrection bodies like the church will. And as the agents roll on, millions and millions of children will be born in that kingdom. There will be tribulation survivors who will have children and families during that time. And although during that glory age, you know what, they'll still have that old fallen nature, that old sinful Adam-like heart that loves sin and will rebel at Christ if given the chance. And that's what we read about here in verse 7 through 10. Revelation tells us that Satan is going to have his uh, chance to come back on the earth at the end of the thousand years. And we read that amazingly, some people are going to join him in a last-ditch effort to try and overthrow the kingdom of Christ. Isn't that strange? But the Bible says that before they even get close to the city of Jerusalem and they march for war, that Jesus is going to send fire from heaven and they're going to be wiped out. Now, as you read that, you shake your head and you scratch your head and you say, wow, that is so strange. Why would God allow that to happen? Here's why. Because the millennium will once and for all answer the age-old question of whether man's problem comes from his nature or from his nurture. Are humanity's woes because he was raised in a bad environment or because mankind is just depraved and sinful, as the Bible says? You see, think about this. For ten centuries, Jesus is going to rule on the earth for, in a perfect environment, a perfect utopia state, and yet, when Satan is loose at the end of that, it will demonstrate that even in a perfect environment, unredeemed man will still spit in the face of God and reject Jesus. I heard about G.K. Chesterton. He was a great English writer, lived during the Victorian era. And he read the newspaper one day, and he saw that an article had been printed. And at the, it was in that article talking about how bad things were in London how there was a drug abuse and how there was crime and how there was poverty. And the editor at the end of that posed a question in the article, uh, what is wrong with this world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote back in with a one-line sentence and it was printed in the newspaper, Dear Sir, in response to your question, what is wrong with the world? I am. Good day. The problem with our world today isn't government. It isn't society. It isn't uh, some kind of liberal agenda. It isn't necessarily poverty. It isn't necessarily the drug trade or pornography. The problem today is a matter of the heart. And man's heart is sinful, wretched, black, and in need of the blood of Jesus Christ to save us from ourselves. That's the only hope that we have, friends. Only Jesus. Well, let's wrap up today and talk about pictures of the millennium. I've talked about the period and 
the purpose. Let's look here at the pictures today. What will life be like during that thousand years? Well, if you had three or four hours, we could go through all kinds of verses in the Old Testament. And you'd be surprised at all that's there. Someone has said that there's so much written about the Millennial Kingdom in the Old Testament that if we were to collect all the verses together and put them in a little book, they would be about the size of the New Testament. There's that much written on it. Well, the first thing that we can say about this time period is it's going to be a time of peace. A time of peace. Look at what Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4 says. He shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, nor shall they learn war anymore. A time of peace. You know, in the Garden of the United Nations headquarters in New York City, there's a dramatic sculpture that's been standing there since 1959. It's actually a gift from the former Soviet Union. And here you see a man taking a sword and hammering it into a plowshare. The imagery is taken directly from Isaiah 2.4. But you know what is left out here? Something very important. You see... Part of chapter 2-4 is on there, but the most important part is left out. And it's this, He shall judge between the nations. You see, they are missing the most important part on this statue, and that is the who, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, who will be the only one who can come and deliver peace to this earth. Ever since this statue was given, you know, they've had the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict, countless tribal wars in Africa, 9-11, the Iraq War, the ongoing battle against terrorism. Friend, we've got a problem. We need the Prince of Peace. Only Jesus Christ will be able to bring about this kind of change where men will lay down their weapons and study war no more. The Bible says in Isaiah 9, 6 that He'll be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and you guessed it, Prince of Peace. And I love the next part. And the government shall be upon His shoulders. Friend, His authority will be absolute. His justice will be true. His peace will be universal. His reign will be benevolent. His throne will be high and lifted up. And His approval ratings will be 100% satisfactory all across the world. People will be saying, Long live the King! Long live the King! A time of peace. Friend, you know that every time that you pray the Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what you're praying for? This very day. A time of peace. It will also be a time of prosperity. During the millennium, the entire world will be turned into a paradise reminiscent of Eden. There are so many verses in the Old Testament about this, it just gets me excited thinking about living on the earth during this time. In fact, Ezekiel speaks of plentiful rain, trees loaded with abundant ripe fruit, and lands that were once desolate deserts now becoming fertile. Listen to what Ezekiel says, chapter 34, verse 27. And trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase. 
And they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars from their yoke. And deliver them from the hand of those who has enslaved land. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree of the increase of the field abundant. And you may never again suffer the disgraces of famine among the nations. You could go to the book of Joel. Joel says that during the millennium that the threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with wine and oil. What does that mean? There'll be no shortage in Jesus' kingdom. There'll be no aching, hungry bellies in Jesus' kingdom. Why, I probably think that even biscuits and gravy is going to taste better in Jesus' millennial kingdom. Amos 9.13 says that, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. What Amos is saying there is that, friend, imagine planting a garden at the beginning of the week, and on Friday, Saturday, harvesting what you planted earlier on. The ground is going to be so fertile, there'll be no time in between planting and harvesting. And best of yet, friend, I don't think there's going to be one weed in the gardens during the time that Jesus is going to reign. Now, if I could take you into Zechariah 14, you guys that fish, you'd love this. In Zechariah 14, it tells us that fresh water is going to flow from Jerusalem down into the Dead Sea. And that old putrefied Salty water of the Dead Sea where there's no life. The fresh water flowing from Jerusalem, from the throne of Jesus Christ, is going to replenish that sea. And fishermen will be pulling record fish, record catches out of the old Dead Sea. I'm telling you, friend, I'm excited about it. Get your fishing pole ready. A time of prosperity. And then we see it's a time of prolonged life. A time of prolonged life. You know, I heard about a preacher who was getting up in years. And he was bad to forget things. That ever happened to you? He went to a church to fill a pulpit that day. And when he arrived, wouldn't you know it, this preacher forgot his teeth. He forgot his dentures. He left them at home. And he went and told one of the deacons. And the deacon said, hey, no problem. He said, come with me, I've got you covered. He took him outside, opened the trunk of his car, pulled out a briefcase... And inside that briefcase was all kinds of dentures. He pulled out a set of dentures. He said, try that preacher. Put him on. He said, no, that first pair, that's not right. He said, that's too big. He said, try this. Put in that second set of dentures. They were too small. Gave him a third set. He put those in. He said, oh yeah, that's just right. Preacher went in. Preached his message. At the end of the service, he went to that old man, that deacon. He said, man, I appreciate it. He said, give me your card. He said, I've been looking for a really good dentist. And the man said, Dennis, what are you talking about? He said, I ain't no dentist. He said, what do you mean? Well, then how'd you get all those dentures? He said, friend, I thought you knew. I'm the undertaker. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, listen. I don't know what dentists and undertakers are going to do in Jesus' millennial kingdom because the Bible says it's going to be a time of prolonged life. A time of health and strength. Look at what Isaiah 65 says. It says, No more shall there be an infant who lives only but a few days, or an old man who doesn't fill out his days, for a young man shall die a hundred years old. 
Bible says in the millennium, if you live to be 100 years old, you're considered young. How about that? So what that means is that people are going to enjoy really long lives, like the pre-flood patriarchs in the book of Genesis. Zechariah chapter 8 tells us there's going to be a baby boom during that era. The Lord of hosts says, Old men and old women shall sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city will be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. You want to be there? Hey, I'm looking forward to it. Here's the last point. Time of peace, time of prosperity, a time of prolonged life, and then a time of praise. This may be what I'm looking forward to the most. Oh, friend, you think church is good here. You wait till you're in a redeemed body, living in the presence of the glorified Christ. You think we'd be able to have a church service then? In the millennium, we are told that Jerusalem will be the center of world worship. Messiah's temple, that's where it will be. Micah 4, 1, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Imagine that. The kingdom of Jesus, Jerusalem, will be lifted up. It will be the highest place on earth, and His throne will be there. Then as Isaiah 60.11 says that the gates of that temple, where we will worship the Lord, people from all over will come to see Jesus, and the whole world will recognize Christ as King. The Bible says, your gates shall be opened continually day and night and they shall not be shut and people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in processions. Isn't that going to be an awesome day when the treasures and the valuables of the world will be thrown at Jesus' feet? He will receive the praise and glory and blessing and honor that's all due to Him. Friend, Psalm 24 says, Open up ye gates so that the King of glory may enter in, and then everybody on the face of the earth will declare, Baruch Habab Shem Adonai, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The other day I was riding around. And I saw an old jalopy. You see a lot of those in Candler Town, don't you? Saw an old jalopy, an old truck. It was riding around. Doug had a bunch of cancer on the back of it. Chipped paint. This wasn't something that rolled out of the Hot Rod magazine. An old beat up F-150. Cracked windshield going across the front. Had a couple of hose clamps holding the muffler on. I mean, this old boy had seen some hard times with this truck. And as I got closer to that old truck, I noticed a bumper sticker on it. You know what it said? It made me laugh. This is not an abandoned vehicle. <laughs> and here's what I want to leave you with today. Listen to me. We live in a fallen world. It's ugly. It's depressing. There's death and disease and divorce and cancer. And everywhere we turn on this earth, there's heartache and there's disaster. And our world seems like it's on the brink of just catching fire. But friend, if you are ever tempted, if you ever wonder, what does God care about this world? I want you to be reminded that the promise of the millennium is true just today as the day it was that John wrote it down 2,000 years ago. And that this old corrupt earth, 
A sign has been hung over it. God rules and reigns. This is not an abandoned planet. One day King Jesus is coming back in power and glory. And friend, He is going to set everything right side up. And I hope you're prepared to go into that kingdom with Him. Friend, do you know Him today as your Savior? You know Him as Lord? Are you living for Him like He's your King? As our musicians come and as we prepare for this time of invitation... Maybe you need to be reminded that Jesus Christ, yes, He died for you. He bled for you. He rose for you. But friend, the next time you see Him, He will not be the Lamb. He'll be the Lion. He'll be coming with power in His hand. He'll be coming with glory around Him. He'll be coming with justice. And I hope that you're ready to meet Him. hope that you've done business, that you've repented of your sin, and that you've trusted in Him as your Savior. We're going to have a time of invitation. If you need to do business with God, I'll be here. I'd love to pray with you. Rededicate your life if you need to do that. If you need to be sure of your salvation and know that heaven is going to be where you will end up, please come. Be obedient to the Holy Spirit as we stand and as we sing today.